Teacher Talk is an ongoing series of podcasts dedicated to exploring the world of English language teaching and teacher education. Teacher Talk is supported by Nile, Norwich Institute for Language Education. Okay, so we're joined um, by Jeremy Harmer. Hello, Jeremy. Hello. Jeremy is a teacher, a teacher trainer, and a writer. You've taught in Mexico and the UK, and you currently teach in New York at the New School. Um, I've got a whole list of books here that you've written, The Practice of English Language Teaching, How to Teach English, Essential Teacher Knowledge, um, Solo Saxophone and Trumpet Voluntary. They, they are um, learner literature, like graded readers. Right, okay. Um, and also with Herbert Puchter, um, story-based language teaching. And gesture. And gesture. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> um, Jeremy, Jeremy, you speak at conferences and you train teachers all over the world. And away from ELT, you're also a practicing musician, a singer-songwriter, and a narrator. Indeed, yes. Okay, so not too much there. <laughs> well, you have to fill the unforgiving hour, don't you? You, you know, you... Um, and they're all things I love doing. Yeah. So, so wh- when, how, and why did you get into English language teaching? I'll tell you exactly uh, how it happened. I, after university, I didn't really know what to do. I tried to study law uh, to please the family, my father, basically, and that didn't go too well. And then I spent uh, two years singing in folk clubs in London and and busking and stuff like that and uh, it was great fun very alternative times in those days but I got a bit fed up of being poor and I was I was at a loose end you just feel you know and and I met another guitarist his name was Alan I wish I could remember his other name but anyway I met another guitarist and he said well I've just done this course he said you can you can do this four-week course and then you can work anywhere in the world and I was a bit directionless but I thought well that sounds okay so I went to International House in uh, those days in Shaftesbury Avenue. This is way, way back. And somehow I managed to get a place on the course, which considering the way I looked uh, and everything was very strange. And I had the experience that, uh, and, and by the way, when I look back on it now, the, there was a lot wrong with that course. It, in the first place, it was quite specifically a course for English people to teach foreigners. Right. You know, there was no suggestion that this might be uh, for people who were competent language speakers. Sure. But that's another story. Those were times, they were different times. Uh, but I had the experience that many people have, which is my first reaction was just sheer terror and what the hell's going on. Sometime in the middle of the second week, I had that kind of light bulb moment when you suddenly thought, you know what, I I could do this. This this mm. suits me it's it's mm. wow and you know you suddenly got this rush of, of enthusiasm and it was really I mean I'll never forget that uh, and so by the time I finished I was all really keen on it okay and I managed to get um, a job not through my own talents but uh, again I won't bore you with the circumstances but I got a job at International House um, there teaching there and it was just magic uh, right in the middle of what was then called Swinging London, and uh, so exciting. And I was 23, 24, I mean, it is exciting. Right. And, and then I also, but I met this, this, this gorgeous girl, uh, and she told me that she's born and grew up in Mexico. So eventually we went to Mexico, and I taught there for many years. 
And that's where I really learned how to teach insofar as you do. So what was your path into teacher training then? Um, most incredible good luck. Do you sometimes feel that life is a mixture of kind of lucky breaks, being in the right place at the right time, whatever you want? So, so much earlier than I should have done, than this should have happened. My immediate boss in Mexico, a man called Richard Rosner, uh, said, he said, one day he came up to me, he said, look, um, we're a bit short of people on our teacher training course because the Anglo-Mexican uh, Institute, which is where I worked, ran its own teacher training course. It wasn't the CELTA, but it, but it was kind of, you would recognize many of the elements. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, we can't pay you anything, uh, but if you're interested in, you know, when you're free, just coming along, seeing what we do, maybe you could help us out with uh, uh, teacher observations, micro-teaching or something like that. And I, and I, it, it just blew my mind. I, I loved it because I think what's happened to all of us is you teach, you teach, you teach. When you then have to start trying to explain what it is you're doing, uh, or justify what you're doing. It gives you a completely different um, uh, a view into teaching and suddenly teaching becomes not just the thing you do but the thing you're really interested in doing and trying to understand how and why. So, so it's literally this guy uh, um, offering me this chance. Okay. And was there a point where you thought of yourself more as a teacher trainer rather than a language teacher? That's quite an interesting question because I, I was in Mexico that time for about two and a half years. Then I came back uh, and worked in the UK for a bit at, uh, at Eurocentre in Bournemouth. And then I went and did a, an MA in Applied Linguistics. And after that, now at the grand old age of uh, 30 or something, um, I, guess, I guess by that stage I was both coordinating advanced classes and teaching, but also running a teacher training course and so gradually the, there was a kind of shift there. So it's, it, it's interesting, some of the people that we've talked to so far, what they've, what they've spoken about is the point at which they felt they had something to say, you know, where they've got enough experience in language and they've got enough theory under their belt that the kind of light bulb goes on and they goes, okay, I've got, I've got ideas about how this should be done or I've got ideas about how it's working did you have that kind of feeling well, as well? Here's another piece of luck, if you like, but, or maybe bad luck, I don't know, but I went into teacher training. When I returned to Mexico, I went into teacher training with an MA inside my head. Mm. It's completely scrambled, mm. you know, because suddenly you know, all the reading and all the theories and the, you know, and you don't know what's going on. At the same time, and, and you will certainly understand this, at the same time, my first child had just been born, so I wasn't sleeping. Mm -hmm. And I just so I was completely crazy, and I would go into the into my teacher training uh, uh, course and do these input sessions. And my poor trainees, these these uh, Mexican trainees, they couldn't understand what I was saying because I, <laughs> I, 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 it was just I hadn't processed enough. Mm. Plus, there's all the stuff about you know when you're a new parent, it's you, everything's a bit up and down. And the only thing I could think of doing because it was clear that something was going wrong and my co-teacher was saying, ah, Jeremy, what are we going to do? So the only thing I thought I, I, I could think of doing was writing up sort of follow-ups to, right. to the input sessions. And I discovered uh, that I could do it in writing in those days much better than I could do it face-to-face. -face. Something seemed to work. 
and and not just that, but um, whatever whatever. Uh, forgive me, my phone's just gone. Uh, uh, whatever language I found to do it seemed to work. In other words, the, the, uh, there was a kind of trainer voice there which worked. And was that how you got into publishing? Absolutely, because um, uh, I, I then I we ended up with collected notes. So you had um, green was those Gestetner things. You remember those? Uh, yeah. uh, you probably don't, but the the copying things where you where you. Um, their ink mm. printed and stuff and you have handles and you and um, so green was for grammar uh, pink was for functions blue was for pronunciation uh, something else was for, was for skills and so I ended up that they ended up that my trainees then with this sort of folder with dividers with the different sections of the course and and then um, someone from one of the publishers I was talking to them and told them about this and they said can we have a look and uh, I said sure Sure, and off it went to the UK, um, and instantly I heard nothing. And so, in the end, I thought, okay, I mean, you know, there are, there are other writers around there; they do. And um, but it turned out the guy I sent it to uh, had died, and this stuff had ended up in the back of his filing cabinet in the in the publishers. And so, the next time one of the publishers came out, I said. I, I, I don't want to be irritating, but did anything happen about that material? I said, he said, what material? So I explained, and he went back and found it in this filing cabinet, and attached to it were two glowing reports saying this is wonderful. That's how it happened. And so then... So then, I mean, as, as it always seems, you, you're saying it was luck, but it was also persistence and having the goods when it came to it, because you, you'd reflected, which not everybody does. I, I think I think it's what happens to all of us, isn't it? I mean, this is, you know, yeah, luck plays a, a luck plays a large part in what we do, but it's not just luck, because mm. anyone can be lucky. Uh, you have to be, and I'm not trying to um, uh, compliment myself or anything like that, but you you have to you have to be in the right condition mm. for luck to strike, which is yeah. I think your point. Yeah. yeah. The preparation, yeah. the persistence. Yeah. It just, you know, if something else had happened, it, I wouldn't have had the luck because I wouldn't have been ready for that. It's that kind of thing. You know. And um, are you still writing about English language teaching? Yes, indeed. Uh, and so I've written over the over the years. Uh, uh, the, the book that those notes were, which turned into the main book called The Practice of English Language Teaching, that is now in its fifth edition. Yeah. So it was first published in 1983, and the fifth edition is 2015. There's another new book in the works. Then I've just done this book on story-based language teaching with Herbert Proctor, which is very much, I mean, it's a, a niche topic, but it's very much that kind of thing, talking about teaching. And there are a couple of other projects in the, in the wind, which may or may not see the light of day, but I hope so, because I... Bizarrely, I really love writing about teaching. Yeah. But you also do a lot, quite a few conferences, and, and mm. so do you, it's interesting because you just said you found it easier to write yeah. than to speak about yeah. it. But now you do speak a lot about it. I think what happens to you if if you get asked to do conferences and early, because then I started writing course books, and the moment I've written course books, um, the publishers want you to go and talk about them. Uh, and, and you sort of go there as a teacher trainer uh, and it's, uh, you know, you do it all right. But I think an awful lot of teachers look at this young guy coming along and saying, you've got to do this. And, and they will, well, most teachers welcome you 
very generously, but you can sort of tell they're thinking, yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, and so what do you do? You toughen up and you harden and you and you sort of and you sort of find out what seems to work and you you develop a style and then just as with with all of us you know there are moments when you have game-changing experiences uh, and that shifts you into another um, uh, territory I've I've been today I've been doing an activity with my trainees which which was a was a game-changing moment it was a workshop I attended a few years ago given by Alan Provenes and and Sarah Mount and and they did an activity which it turned out was a, they originally got from Alan Maley and it was just it, it absolutely blew my mind mm-hmm. and I still do that activity because what's the activity well it's, it's it's a very straightforward simple one it's one where you give people a poem put them in groups of seven or eight and say you will perform this poem in 25 minutes mm-hmm. uh, and they say well how you say well uh, uh, the rules are everyone has to take part, the poem has to be spoken, but how you speak it and how many people speak it, I don't care. And if you want to act it out or sing it or do it word by word, it's entirely up to you. But that's what you have to do. Here's the poem, 25 minutes. And what was the game-changing aspect of this? It's something to do with, with uh, something to do with the whereas in the past, uh, I went through a period of believing, for example, communicative activities were valuable in themselves just by being. Yeah. It was something about actually being able to create activities which had that feature, but which actually did something more, had some more power. And so the beauty of this poetry activity is how incredibly creative it is, how no group will ever do a poem the same as another group, how you get this purposeful repetition all the time, you get incredible amount of deep processing of meaning and language and so on and so forth. Now all of those things sort of, it just kind of, I just thought, now that's really doing something. Mm-hmm. And, and the discourse up until then, this is too simplistic, but the discourse up until then had been, um, you know, the communicative activities get they're free and they're communicative and you don't correct while they're happening and blah 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 blah. And then the other, other rather more prosaic kind of um, language activities uh, um, aren't like that. They're they're less communicative. Um, uh, the reason I I loved that activity so much uh, as a participant, and then uh, now as a as a user of that activity as a teacher. Is, is that it satisfies a lot of what we want communicative activities to have, but at the same time shows how such an activity can actually have a sort of deep uh, impact on language processing and, 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 and bring in its train good language learning uh, in a way that doesn't involve the teacher doing all the work. Indeed, the students do most of the work. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, especially for teacher training, the discussion it provokes mm. about what learning and teaching is all about is mm. just magic. So it, it sort of changed like that for me. Right? So the, you've spoken about poetry, and I, I know that more recently you've become interested in the link between music and language. Is it a similar kind of thing, or is it is it very different from your perspective? Uh, it's it's somewhat different. Uh, the poetry, it, uh, what I said to my uh, teachers today I've been working with is we're going to do poems today but these lessons aren't about poetry at all mm-hmm. the poetry is just a vehicle for for a discussion about uh, learning and, and stuff like that and music, well now music uh, uh, first of all it's a private 
passion. So uh, I'm an amateur viola player. I play in a couple of orchestras. I didn't start until I was in my 40s. It's been quite a struggle and I'll probably never be very good. But I'm just good enough to play incredible music surrounded by 75 other musicians. It's just the most wonderful feeling. And then the other part of me, which is, you know, from way back then, yes, I, I write songs, I sing songs. I, uh, in Norwich last night, I went to an open mic night at a pub here and had the most wonderful time and sang my three songs. I love, that's what I love. Mm -hmm. the, the, there are various um, uh, connections between music and, and learning. Uh, the easiest one is, is how music, experiencing music can provoke you into a kind of deep engagement mm. and so on. So, uh, uh, because the beauty of, of, of wordless music is precisely that it's wordless. And you can have students all the time saying, yeah, I'm not interested in that kind of music. But fascinatingly, everyone will respond to what they think the, piece, the mood of a piece of music is. Mm -hmm. That's why when kids say, I don't listen to classical music, you're tempted to say, to them, well, actually you do. Every time you mm -hmm. watch a soap opera, every time you watch, there's something which sounds like classical music. If the filmmaker wants you to be sad, they mm -hmm. go, ah, music. And if they want you to be frightened, they go, eh, music, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So you've got all that um, we've got going for us. And in terms of sort of language activities, um, you can set up all sorts of activities which are provoked by sound, which are provoked by different pieces of music. Uh, uh, a favourite one of mine is, is the, um, uh, um, you, you give students a, a little sentence, like he turned and looked at her and, and you say, I want you to continue the story and they look really miserable. But you say, the music will tell you what to write and you play them some very sort of mournful music. And then they finish the story and then they turn the piece of paper over. Uh, and then you give them the same sentence and you say, I want you to write a new story. And you give them, I don't know, some boppy dancey music and they write the story. And then you can get students to read out one or the other and everyone has to guess which piece of music it was. Mm. Now, forgive that little example, but that's the power of music. Mm. And there was a wonderful book, which is now out of print called Musical Openings by uh, Clement Leroy and 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 the other guy, hmm. uh, forgive me, that's a, a senior moment there, which is packed full of activities like that and really useful ones. Then there's the whole issue, a uh, very good article the other day in ELT Journal about teachers who use background music when students are mm. doing things. Yeah. And, and, and she argued uh, very passionately that this was a good thing uh, and that a good teacher will have a sort of playlist of of music to suit different moods depending on the uh, the group work task. What interests me about that is is that it's not always welcome. No. Uh, indeed, some students could think of nothing worse than having music playing when they're trying to do a piece of reading. I, or something. I am one of those weird people that can't concentrate unless I'm listening to white noise. You know, and to other people it sounds like Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, don't don't put any music on for yeah. me. Whereas I'm exactly opposite. I mean, yeah. I, when I'm sitting at home writing, I have music on all the time. So. And why? I don't know. It's just just who we are. So if you are going to use background classroom music, you know, for me, the sort of sine qua non of that is you ask students first whether they want it. You know, and if you've got a couple of students who say, please, no, well, that should that should kind of give you a hint uh, so, of what's going on. You see, I, I, when when Tony and I were talking about this and um, we were thinking about the connection between music mm. and, and language teaching, 
the, what came to my mind was the idea of practicing and I, I so I was wondering if that's something that you're also interested in here the idea Indeed. that learning a, a musical instrument requires this deliberate practice that's you exactly. sit down with yeah. the intention to yeah. practice yeah. a particular skill yeah. and you will do it over and over is this what language learning involves as well the, the, one of my favorite books in the world is a book called guitar zero by gary marcus in which he describes age 39 he's a cognitive psychologist mm -hmm. he describes what it's like to learn the guitar from zero never never touched a guitar before and in this book it's an immensely enjoyable read and he goes because he can he goes to visit lots of famous musicians to ask them um, uh, and he reflects on on the processes he's gone through and how that relates to sort of cognitive processes that in his professional life he's always concerned with. And of course one of them, and this is absolutely something that fascinates me both personally and professionally, is the issue of practice. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, so here's me trying to be a better viola player. Uh, there are many problems with that. One is I'm really bad at practicing. Uh, I, I, I know I should practice more, but I don't do it. Another is, I'm perfectly well aware, and this is confirmed by research in the literature, is that I can, in inverted commas, practice, mm. but nothing happens at all. Yeah. I can play the notes, but if my mind is occupied elsewhere, uh, then all I'm doing is playing the notes, and though it may give me a little bit of physical... Uh, dexterity, it doesn't actually necessarily improve the situation at all. Right. You used uh, the term deliberate practice, which, mm. which suggests to me that you're familiar with this area as well. Um, and this comes from a man called Anders Ericsson, mm. who's done a lot of research about this. And he says, you know, if, if you, you can do 10,000 hours practice, but if you're not practicing deliberately, deliberately, you might as well not waste your time. And the same is true for languages, he says. Uh, and what does he mean by deliberate practice? Well, I went and asked a lot of my musician friends, my classical musician friends, rather than my folk musician friends. Um, uh, but Well, because the classical ones sort of have thought about this and they talk about sure. it all the time. And there's a girl called Chrissy, who was the leader of an orchestra I was playing, and she got it just right. She said, good practice, she said, is is conscious practice. You have to concentrate on what you're doing. You have to process the sound that you are making uh, uh, in relationship to what you're actually doing with the bow. You have to analyze things, break them down, work out what's going on. And that's when some kind of learning development takes place. Uh, Does that involve feedback from somebody? Well, uh, what they say is, no, you're fine. I'll come to feedback in a minute. You're fine. Uh, if, you're, if you are practicing deliberately, fully thoughtful, not mindful, because that sort of means something a bit else, sure. a bit, bit different. If you're fully thoughtful, if you're really concentrating so that you understand what every little precise thing you're doing uh, is doing, then you're in with a good shout for getting better. And one of the worries about practice uh, um, is precisely that sometimes when you practice, you're not that concentrating. So there's a, there's a, a famous book of, um, of exercises, which I use by Shevchik, it must be 17th or 18th century. They're just exercises for viola players. 
You play it a hundred times, then you go da 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 da, and then you go da 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 da. Just little little exercises mm. like that. Now the thing is, they're really boring, mm. and and you can play them, and they will have no effect on you whatsoever, really. In order to really make it work, you need deliberate practice. There was a piece of research also which absolutely fascinated me from the University of Texas. Oh no, from three different universities in Texas, but three researchers who got together. And, um, and they, uh, some students, uh, music majors, were going to perform a, a, a piece of Shostakovich piano music in the afternoon. So for research purposes, they set them to work practicing, getting ready for it, and they videoed them, I presume with uh, permission and stuff. And they found that the amount of time they spent on this preparation was not, was not the predictor of mm, success. Correlate. What did correlate is what students did when they hit a problem. And some students did what I would always do, which is kind of charge through it or leap mm. over the top so mm. I could keep mm. going. Yeah. That's why I'm not a very good practicer. Mm. The ones who did really well were the ones who, when they hit this knotty problem, some weird fingering, they stuck at it until they'd solved it, and mm. then they went on. Yeah. In other words, you can describe good practice. Uh, now, does that mean that's the same with uh, English language learning? And how much of that is within the, the, the gift of the teacher and how much of it has to be within the gift of the student, the individual student? And I'm not sure of the answer to that, but at least it's something we can talk about and think about. The other thing about practice that everyone says, all the musicians I've interviewed, is, is, is um, uh, small is beautiful. Mm -hmm. That you're much better off doing lots and lots of small practice than doing long, long bits of practice. Mm. And I find an instant echo in that with, with language teaching because, uh, you know, all of us have at earlier stages of our career, uh, maybe even now, you know, occasionally sort of bashed students with lots and lots of deliberate practice, but there's a point beyond which it becomes counterproductive. Mm. It, it, you know, you get, you reach saturation. And I've nearly finished, but you mentioned um, feedback. Yeah. Um, uh, and this is related to practice. I we we did a concert the other night, and uh, they brought in a um, a couple of extra cellists. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, to bump up the cello section. We were playing an incredibly uh, com uh, complex um, uh, symphonic poem called "Ein Heldenleben" by Richard Strauss, and it's an absolute nightmare, and it's. It's an absurd piece of music for many reasons, but it's absolutely awash with orchestral density and colour. So she came along, this, this woman, an absolutely lovely woman, and I'd never met her before. Uh, she was a friend of our principal cellists, and, and after the concert you go to the pub and you hope there's no one who wasn't in the orchestra because all you do is, it's like a football team or something, mm. you discuss, oh my God, in that the third bar after B, do you remember? Oh, that was terrible. I mean, it's, awfully boring unless you were actually there. Anyway, I started talking to her and, and found her engaging uh, and interesting. And so I found out that she's a professional cellist, she plays in music sessions all the time, she deps in orchestras all the time, and she was also doing a, a, a doctorate. I said, what's it about? And she said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a doctorate on the effect of feedback in music lessons. Wow. Uh, 
because the music lesson is an incredibly intimate thing. It's normally one-on-one, and you play your piece and you you mess it up. So what do I say to you? And what is the effect of that? Mm. And I'm really interested in that. And I keep badgering her saying, have you got, is there anything I could see? Is there anything Mm. I could see? Because there's an absolute correlation between what she's talking about and what we talk about. Mm. You know, if, if, uh, what's his name, Derek Hattie is right, uh, Derek Hattie, John, John Hattie is right. Um, you know, feedback is one of the mm, mm. one of the most effective learning aids we've got. I don't know if you've seen. There's a um, conductor of the I think it's Boston Philharmonic called Benjamin Zander. I know who you mean. Yeah, and he does. Um, you, you you see him doing master classes, and he gives feedback, and you can see the development of the person as the feedback is given, and it it, it just changes the music completely and all he's doing is giving you know one piece of feedback he gives is play on one buttock you know so instead of sitting (laughs) directly on the chair he forces the person to lean into the music and it changes it completely i had a a similar experience to that by the way which absolutely i'm absolutely blown away by this so i have a a very close friend called uh, steve bingham and we do shows together poetry and music Mm -hmm. shows uh, indeed, he's been to Nile many times to do a, a show, and he plays the violin, and he also does um, looping. He hooks up his electric violin to computers and things, and it's just magic stuff, and I enjoy working with him. And one day we were due to do a, a show uh, at a place where he was involved in a music course for amateur string quartets, so uh, two violins, a viola, and a cello. And uh, I got there early. He said, well, come and, come and watch what I do. You know, so I went and sat in the corner, uh, and there were three women there, four women there of a certain age, which is to say about my age, and they were very nervous. They were clearly nervous. I think they were nervous because Steve was in the room, because there they are, faced with a you know top of the range professional trying to sound not too bad. So off they started this uh, famous piece of Mozart, and it was kind of you know slightly out of tune and. and I just remember sitting there thinking, what's she going to do? You know, if I was the teacher right now, what would I do? Uh, very much as we do all the time mm. with language students, mm. what do I do? Mm. Uh, and, and it was a master class in what teacher experience gives you, which is almost subconscious. So he said, oh, yeah, thanks very much, he said. And I was thinking, well, you can't say. He said, um, I tell you what, let's have a look at what was your name again? Oh yeah, Paula, the cello. Um, just just play your the bit at the beginning of the movement. And she had to go, doom, 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 doom. And so she went, So then he said, he said, no, no, I tell you what, I tell you what, that's great, Paula, but but why don't you do it again, only this time be really ridiculous. Just have a real go, just really bash it, go. And she went, dee, 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 dee. D, D. And he said, more, more, come on, come on, let's just be silly. And she went, boom, 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 boom. And this went on for about four minutes. And he said, yeah, that's great, well done. <coughs> and then he said, okay, let's, why don't we start the movement again, yeah. all four of us. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't very good, but it was about a million percent better. And finding that, finding that, exactly what you've just said about the masterclass, finding that kind of, where do I start? The secret key. Mm. Okay, so is this something that you can 
train teachers to do or is it just something that comes through experience? Well, it certainly comes with experience or uh, maybe our confidence, our feedback giving confidence comes with experience. Though it's worth pointing out that there's nothing special about experience. You can have the same experience a thousand times, but if you don't learn anything from it, it's just experience. I know nothing about teeth cleaning, even though I've cleaned my teeth thousands of times, because I've never really processed the experience I've had. I've never thought about it deeply or reflected on it. So experience isn't enough. Um, the, the, certainly in terms of feedback, experience plus some kind of reflection, either directed or not directed, is absolutely vital in developing that. There's a sort of problem that happens in a teacher's career, which is when you do your initial training, um, it's really difficult to, to focus on the students because you're focusing so hard on what you need to do to satisfy the suggestions being made by your trainer and maybe the syllabus of whatever exam you're preparing for, that you focus, You, I mean, we've all seen that, uh, teachers doing something like the Seltzer, and they're focused so, so specifically on what they're doing that, that, you know, you keep saying, but didn't you hear what the student said? And the answer is, no, of course not. But as you begin to relax, then you do start listening. But some teachers are better listeners than others. So what do we do about them? Well, if you're the mentor or the developer or the academic observer who comes and works with, with teachers, you constantly remind, you constantly, you, you constantly talk about listening, about the listening experience. Because so, good teachers are good listeners. I know that's a cliche, but it's absolutely true. Uh, and you can go further. You can, uh, a really useful activity, for example, is to get uh, um, teachers to record a an audio record a class and then just, just transcribe, not the whole class, that would take you days, but to transcribe any little moment where you give feedback and then transcribe it and read it and look at it and think about it. And what does it look like on the written page? Now, that may not be a true account of what it was mm. because of the atmosphere, but at least you've got something to think about, to talk about. Uh, and then I would go further and to say that, that um, uh, we do have to shift away from, from uh, an overemphasis on corrective feedback. In, in initial training, and there are reasons why we do that, uh, to, to you know, forward-looking feedback, mm -hmm. uh, feedback that is designed to encourage and provoke. Endless conversation about it. I, th I think feedback is uh, a correction, if you want, uh, is, is, um, is, is sort of the nexus where everything about language teaching happens all in this one place. Mm -hmm. And what you do then, it, it kind of defines you as a teacher, I think. Fantastic place to end. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank Most you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so we've just had a chat with Jeremy Harmer. Tony, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you reflect on that conversation? Well, I think as with a lot of conversations that we've had, it's this thing about their root to where they are, that, that often it's not about conscious planning or uh, preparation for the day when you will be given the opportunity. That Jeremy did a lot of preparation, but it was preparation in terms of what he was doing as a teacher, that he was, he talks about collecting 
the the materials that that he okay. used. So on you the mean course. Jeremy's sort of route into yeah. writing, into writing, and but also into possibly what you could call you know teacher training or early teacher training mm. that he he was he was reflecting on what he was doing. He was thinking about what worked, what didn't work, what problems were teachers having, how could he. He helped with those and writing it down and creating this this resource that he was then able to say, okay, I've got the materials here to do something something with it, a book in in that case. So I suppose the the sort of contemporary uh, version of that would be something like blogging or even what we're doing now, podcasting. Yeah, you know. Um, Exploring without necessarily knowing exactly where you're going with things, but mm. collecting ideas, experiences, um, and there are—I mean, there are some really great teacher blogs out there. A, a lot, and, and it'd be great to see even more. Yes, and and what it seems to me that happens is that many of those blogs end up in some book form because publishers note how many hits those blogs are getting or how much interest they're developing and think there's an audience there that would buy this book and yeah but the point is you you don't start the blog with a view to getting a publishing contract no no no. i mean uh, many of the blogs that i follow they were started as exploration they were almost almost started as a as a diary of this is what i'm thinking this is what i've i've learned today just keeping track of, of what's going on and, and, and how they're developing and then able to link back to those previous articles and say, well, I thought that and now I've, I've, I've decided this. I mean, one of my favourite examples of this is David Dido, who um, does a, a blog called Learning Spy. He's not writing on it so much now, but um, if you go back to his early posts and look at what he was saying, Later posts often completely contradict what he was saying, but he, he makes that explicit. This is what I've learned. This is my position. This is where I am. Yeah, but and he has, to be fair, published um, well at least a couple of books that I'm aware of. Four, I think, of the last right. count. Okay, yeah. so he has gone from blog to to book. Mm. Um, but what I found inspiring about Jeremy's um, you know story there um, is is that. Um, you know, it shows what's possible. Yes, yes, and and what's possible without necessarily planning or, or you know working it out in meticulous detail. Now, you could argue, well, that was a different a different day and uh, era, but as you've just said, the, a similar story is happening in a different way um, nowadays. Yeah. What then did you think about because? A lot of what Jeremy was talking there was, you know, the, the relationship to music and, and language learning or language teaching. One of the things that he was talking about um, was this notion of deliberate practice. Mm. And, you know, that when you're learning a musical instrument, um, one of the things that you're doing is, is deliberately and consciously practicing over and over and over certain um, skills, if you like. He also mentioned that the idea with with deliberate practice is to really reduce it down to um, a kind of molecular level where you're 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 practicing very in a very focused way, very very small, um, specific 
skills? I think I think the most important thing there is the specificity that a lot of what I've read about music development is this idea that you are saying, okay, I'm I'm going to practice this part and my definition of a success in this part is being able to run through it five times in a row with no errors Mm. and until I get those five times in a row I will keep going over it and maybe that means that I start slower and I have it five times in a row and then I build it up so it's faster and the I mean the literature on this from um, you know psychologists the, the other field that they talk about is sport, mm. where this is used, um, you know, in terms of um, training, the, the notion of practicing skills, specific skills over and over and over. But educationalists have been keen to relate this to learning, this notion mm. of deliberate practice. And, and Jeremy was, was suggesting that as well, that there's a place for this in the language classroom. What do you think? I, I think he's got a point. I, I would just make the observation that with some sports, the, the sport is between you and, say, the ball, like in, in golf. You know, that it is maybe the wind plays a variable as well. But in communication, in language learning, especially when it's language learning to be able to communicate the other people are a huge variable. Mm. You know, very often one, one issue that students have is they cannot control the speed at which the other person speaks or the accent in which they speak. And they struggle with that. And how do I get the other person to speak slower without saying to them, you need to speak slower, I cannot understand. So how do you then adjust the variables and one of the things that I work on in class with students is being able to give them or to help them to have strategies or or methods that they can use to interact in ways that kind of um, adjust those variables so how can you how can you interact with somebody in a way that indicates to them that maybe they should slow down or maybe they should speak more clearly mm. without saying. Well, I suppose the, the, the question to ask there is, can, in, when, we look, when we talk about language skills, whatever they are, that, I mean, that's another question to raise, but can they be broken down in the way that um, Jeremy is talking about if we relate that back to learning a musical instrument, can can we break language learning skills down in that way? And the second question, I suppose, in terms of um, strategies, is I wonder if at a meta level, uh, when you're you're thinking about learning about learning in the language classroom, um, whether those kinds of strategies can be deliberately practiced. These are good questions. I mean, <clears throat> one of the points I would I would make is, and I think Jeremy would agree with this. We'll have to wait and see. Is that there are some skills that are necessary, but they are not sufficient. That that, for instance, phonological awareness, so awareness of what sounds are being made, it is necessary. You have to be able to identify the, the sounds of English. You have to be able to identify what words are being 
you know, spoken or uttered. You have to be able to 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 identify what is a, a sentence unit, but it's not the be all and end all. That that kind of practice is necessary, but then you need to put it into use in a wider context where the variables are all of a sudden much more variable, as it were. Yeah, okay. So there's some some thinking to do about the relationship between practice and learning. Mm. Um, Jeremy was also talking about other uses of music in the the language classroom. He was talking about actually listening to music. Sure. um, Using music as a stimulus for discussion to help... um, increase engagement in the classroom as well yeah and and i think it's interesting to make that you know that 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 distinction that language can sorry music can be used as a stimulus for discussion he's he's talking about you know how does this music make you feel we spoke earlier with claudia about uh, the work of alan maley who's been a huge influence on my own teaching and training and he, uh, along with Alan Duff, produced some early books uh, about listening, sounds interesting, sounds intriguing, where it was working with these sounds. What, does, what is this sound? What is happening in this soundscape? What is, what is this music making you feel? Um, I think that, that music can have a profound influence on uh, language development and engagement of students, really. Um, can uh, really increase the the engagement and the processing and the way that that students are connecting to the language and connecting with the language. Okay, so from that point of view, it could be something that that teachers might want to explore further in their own practice. Definitely. Definitely.